Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Looks like I picked a very volatile week to go out to Las Vegas, although I didn't pick this week. I guess the week picked me because I have two conferences that I am attending here, both the Las Vegas Money Show and the Skybridge Alternative Asset Conference, otherwise known as SALT. And so I am recording this podcast from my hotel room. And unfortunately, no, I forgot to bring my traveling mic with me. So I'm just talking into the mic that's built into my MacBook Air. So nobody uh, has to go and comment uh, in the, uh, you know, the comment section of the YouTube video as to the quality of the recording. I mean, it is what it is. But I figured better to do a recording now with what's going on in the markets rather than wait till I get back to uh, Puerto Rico and have an, an actual mic. Although I will be back in my Connecticut studio in a couple of weeks, and there is where I have, I think, the best audio quality of my equipment. But anyway, a lot is going on. Certainly the political chaos here in the United States. The Dow was down 365 points, I believe, yesterday, based on new revelations with respect to why uh, Donald Trump may have fired uh, FBI Director Comey. Uh, was he doing it because Comey was refusing uh, to give up on an investigation of, uh, of the president, of Donald Trump, and uh, the ties to Russia and all that? And, you know, so this thing is getting blown up. And now you've got a certain congressman, even on both sides of the aisle, saying, well, if these allegations are true, apparently Comey has some contemporaneous notes of conversations he had uh, with Donald Trump, where Donald Trump may have asked him to uh, give up the uh, the investigation. Although, uh, from what I've heard, he said, well, it would be nice. I hope you would give it up. I mean, was that some kind of uh, idle threat, you know, you know, just kind of like a wink, wink? You know, when you say to somebody, I hope you give this up, are you really meaning you better do it or you're fired? I have no idea, but this obviously is creating some concerns uh, for the Trump administration. The market, as far as I'm concerned, is really not down very much at all, given how much the market had rallied based on nothing but the hype surrounding uh, all of the good things that were going to happen as a result of Donald Trump being president. We were going to get this tax reform. We were going to get rid of all these regulations. We were going to have all this stimulus. And not only has none of that actually materialized yet, and even before all this stuff broke, this scandal, uh, it was obvious that even if we got any of this good stuff, which, of course, I've said isn't even going to help the economy. But forget about that, because people actually think it's going to. They don't understand the economy. So they believe that all this stuff that they believe Trump is going to do is going to be so helpful. And that's why the stock market had this big rally. Well, even before this controversy, it was obvious that 
any of that good stuff wasn't going to happen for a lot longer than people thought. And now this is going to delay it even more because now rather than concentrating on tax reform or repealing Obamacare or stimulus, now they've got to deal with this. Now they've got to deal with damage control to hold on uh, to the presidency and fend off these calls for an impeachment. And now they got to get a special prosecutor. And all of this is just going to add additional delays. And of course, you know, a lot of the momentum that we had in the Q1, even though we had such weak GDP, you had all this confidence, all this enthusiasm on the part of Republicans and Trump voters. And it was all this confidence that was supposed to lead to extra economic growth because businesses were going to have more confidence to invest and hire and consumers are going to have more confidence to spend. Well, certainly what's happening now uh, with the White House is going to shake some of that confidence. After all, some of the people who were so enthusiastic about Trump don't even know if Trump's going to be there anymore. And to the extent that he's there, he is politically damaged. And now he has to use a lot of his political capital just to secure his position rather than to advance his agenda. Whether or not that agenda would actually help the economy, the country, you have a lot of people who thought that it would. And that's where you had all the confidence. So this should rattle confidence, as should the drop in the stock market if it continues. But despite that, this drop is not very large. I mean, look at what's happening in Brazil. And maybe one of the reasons that the U.S. stock market is not getting crushed today, at least as I'm recording this, the Dow is up about 50 points, is because the Brazilian market is getting obliterated. It's crashed. I mean, you got a lot of these Brazilian stocks today are down 10 to 20 percent based on a political scandal in Brazil, where they, they have a recording of the president of the Brazil offering a bribe and they've got that on audio recording and the market is crashing because they're calling for resignation or impeachment there now of course it's the same problem here although i guess they've got uh, a better case against the brazilian president because it seems pretty clear uh, that there's actually a bribe being offered but this shows you what can actually happen with a market that's smaller, when everybody wants to get through the same door at the same time, the liquidity is not there and prices collapse. I mean, the same thing could eventually happen to the United States. But of course, if we had a drop today, like they're experiencing in Brazil, the Federal Reserve would be out there, right? They would be cutting rates. They would be telegraphing QE4. They would be doing whatever they could to try to reverse the decline in the market. But I think, though, one of the reasons that the U.S. stock market is probably not even going down war is because I think a lot of people are already starting to look at what happens if Trump were to resign or be impeached. And now they're thinking, wait a minute, you know, because a lot of the people in the Republican Party didn't really like Trump. You never the never Trump movement, the dump Trump movement. I mean, there are a lot of Republicans who were afraid of Donald Trump, mainly because they thought he would blow the election for them. But in fact, Donald Trump won the election for the Republicans, and maybe he's the only Republican who could have won. But, you know, a lot of Republicans, like uh, Mike Pence, remember, they always said, hey, if the ticket can only be reversed, if Mike Pence could have been on the top of the ticket instead of the bottom of the ticket, right? A lot of people really like Pence. Now they're thinking, wait a minute, if we get rid of Trump, we get President Pence. We still have uh, the White House. We have the Senate. Right. We have the House of Representatives. So people are thinking, hey, maybe it's actually better if we don't have Trump. 
So I really think that Trump's future at this point depends on politics. The Republicans in the House and Senate are going to have to make a decision. Who do they want to go with? Do they want to stick with Trump or do they want to uh, replace him with Pence? And it's all going to be about politics. I mean, where do they think their chances are better of being reelected, right? Because all the congressmen are up for reelection in 2018, a third of the U.S. Senate. A lot of them are Republicans. And they have to decide, you know, do they want to run with President Trump or do they want to run with President Pence? And I don't know. They're going to start polling it. I think everything is all about politics. And, of course, there, there is a, a problem, right, if they end up kicking out Trump, a lot of loyal Trump voters, that's not going to go down well. And, in fact, that's going to only solidify the idea that he was there to shake up the establishment and the establishment gave him the boot. If people are going to think the fix is in, it's probably going to make Trump more popular than ever with his own people. And so I think that is going to be one of the concerns that Republicans have, that if they don't stand by Trump, that there's going to be some kind of a backlash within their own party. But depending on how strong the evidence is against him, they may feel they're better off uh, changing horses and going with somebody who's more mainstream and maybe by the time the election comes around, uh, there'll be some forgiveness. I don't really know. My, my gut is that Trump will survive it. Look, I mean, he survived. Remember that locker room talk in the primary where he was, you know, he was caught on tape, you know, grabbing by the you know what? And you know what? He survived that. And who would have thought anybody could have possibly survived something like that in this day and age of political correctness? So he survived. So he probably will survive again. But, you know, if. Um, we ended up with a, a President Pence. At least we know for sure that the swamp's not getting drained, that there's not going to be any change, even though I don't believe that's happening, because if you actually look at Trump, the president versus Trump, the candidate, uh, you know, he's very comfortable in that swamp, uh, but he still talks about changing. I think a lot of the people who were optimistic that things were going to turn around because Trump was going to make America great again, who is going to believe that Mike Pence is going to make America great again. I mean, what about Mike Pence would suggest anything uh, different? I mean, he is totally status quo, mainstream, establishment Republican. I mean, nothing. Nobody could possibly believe that anything would change. And of course, I think regardless, there's a very good chance that the Republicans are going to lose the House and, and the Senate, regardless of who's president based on the fact that people are going to be disappointed. And I think this economy is going back into recession, despite the fact that yesterday, I think the Atlanta Fed came out and now they upped their, their estimate again for Q2. I think it's back at 4.3% now. Of course, they're ignoring uh, what's going on right now as far as the potential impact on confidence on this new scandal and a potential uh, correction in the, uh, in the stock market. You know, we also got news out yesterday about household debt. And finally, total household debt is now higher than it was in 2008 before the financial crisis. So this is an all-time high. And, you know, you would expect that this to be a negative report, right? Because now we have more debt than we had right before the last crisis. So you would think that this would be reported, you know, as bad news. But instead, it's being reported as there's nothing to worry about. I read these articles about why we shouldn't worry because households are in better shape now than they were then. And because the delinquency rates are not as high 
And, and so we don't have to worry, which is all a bunch of nonsense because the delinquency rates can go higher. Just because they're not as high now doesn't mean they're not going to go higher uh, than they were when they were back then. But the big difference that nobody is talking about, I haven't seen one story written where they mention this fact, but mortgage debt is much lower than it was in 2008. Yet despite that, total household debt is even higher now than it was back in 2008, in spite of a significant reduction in mortgage debt. Now, why is mortgage debt down? It's not because homeowners have just paid off their mortgages. It's because homeowners are no longer homeowners. People that used to own homes now rent homes or apartments instead. So homeowners have been turned into tenants. And so obviously when you're renting, you don't have any mortgage debt. Now that doesn't mean you don't have payments that you have to make. You have to pay your rent now. So instead of making your mortgage payments and your property taxes, you're paying rent. So people still have to do this. In fact, for a lot of people who had adjustable rate mortgages or teaser rates, there are people now who are paying higher rents than when they were paying their mortgage. So it doesn't mean that you don't have you know, an expense just because you no longer have mortgage debt when you have rent. But also the other big thing that you don't have when you're a renter is you don't have home equity. Because back in 2008, when all these homeowners had all this mortgage debt, their homes, at least on paper, were worth more than the debt. So the difference was their equity. That was their asset. And in fact, homeowners had the ability to tap into that equity with a home equity loan or a line of credit. And so they can use that equity to help pay off their other debts that they had, their credit card debts or their auto loans, or just you know pay for their living expenses. They had that asset that they can tap into. Well, they don't have that anymore. Obviously, if you don't have a house, you don't have the liability of a mortgage, but you don't have the asset of the home equity to the extent that the value of the house exceeds the mortgage. And so if you look at today's situation, yes, debt is down because people no longer have mortgages, but their assets are down because they no longer have a home. So if you look at the balance sheet of the typical household today, yes, you know, the debt is higher than it was back then, but the wealth, the assets are much lower because most people have lost their biggest asset, meaning their house, the people who no longer have a have a mortgage because you have credit card debt, auto loans, and student loans off the charts. They've risen so much since 2008 that the increase in those debts have more than offset the decrease in mortgage debt because so many former homeowners are now tenants. So I would argue that we are in much worse shape now than we were in 2008, and people don't have the lifeline. Now you don't have the ability to tap into your home equity if you no longer have a home in order to cope with the other rising uh, debts. And the other problem is how many full-time jobs have been lost since 2008 and replaced by part-time jobs? So now you have a household, let's say, where in 2008 they had a big mortgage, but they had a lot of home equity, and yeah, they had some credit card debt and an auto loan, but... The principal breadwinner had a full-time job. Now, today, 2017, there is no home equity because the home is gone. They're paying rent. The rent keeps rising every year. They got even more credit card debt. They got even more auto debt than they had back then. And the principal breadwinner now only has a part-time job. So, And even for the people who still have full-time jobs, 
Real wages have fallen since 2008, even though household debt has risen, even without the mortgage. So this is bad news, and nobody is really reporting it as bad news. They are just glossing over it. And one thing I wanted to point out, too, you know, I'm at this uh, the SALT conference, and yesterday at lunch, Jeff Gundelok was the, the lunch speaker. And if you don't know who Jeff Gundelok is, he's now, he's the new Bond King. I mean, I forget who labeled him the Bond King. He used to be Bill Gross, but now it's Gundelok. And, you know, he's like the big name now. I mean, this guy says something. It's all over the news. He can move markets. He's like the new, like, it guy as far as the mainstream. He's the brainchild. He's very smart. Went to all the best schools. You know, got, I don't know, maybe he might have got a 1600 on his SAT or close to it, just like uh, Ben Bernanke, who, by the way, is also here again uh, at SALT. He's pushing the paperback version of his book, uh, The Courage to Act. And again, I, I say that they need to retitle that book, A Coward's Way Out. Because he was a coward and we're all going to suffer. Americans are going to suffer from his cowardice. But he's, you know, he's here collecting his $250,000 speaking fee, which is not as much as, I guess, the four hundred grand that, that Obama gets now when he speaks. But he gets a lot of money to come here and say basically nothing. Talk about how great he was and how great the Fed is and how everything is going to go uh, perfectly. And, you know, they, they, they saved the day. But, you know, I say this all the time. If you ever happen to be in a bookstore, if you see those paperback books, uh, a courage to act, take the books, take them out of the, the nonfiction section and move them into the fiction section because that's where they belong. It is total fiction. There is no fact in anything that uh, that Ben Bernanke is writing. But I want to get back to Jeff Gundelock. And the reason I bring this up is because he is an establishment guy, smart guy, according to everybody who everybody who should know, right? All the mainstream people listen to this guy. And his whole presentation was basically just like a playbook from my portfolio, my investment thesis right now. Now, he's not, you know, he's not gloom and doom. He's not talking about the U.S. economy being in trouble. He didn't talk about the Fed and bad monetary policy. No macro stuff, right? And I don't even know necessarily, you know, where where he feels macro. I mean, maybe he agrees with me or not. I, I don't know. But all he talked about was a historical perspective on valuations, on trends in the markets. And his conclusion was that the U.S. was very expensive and that people should sell U.S. stocks and invest in foreign stocks. In particular, he likes the emerging markets and he was going back, you know, 50 years or so and looking at data and looking at charts and looking at uh, cap ratios, which are kind of a growth rated, uh, you know, valuation, a P metric. But he was saying, look, history shows you that this is a great opportunity to buy foreign stocks, to buy emerging markets. And he was also very bearish on the dollar, saying the same kind of stuff as me, saying that the crowd is wrong, that this crowded trade, that the dollar is going to go up because the Fed is raising rates is wrong. And he pointed out that historically, when the Fed is typically raising rates, the dollar is falling. And he mentioned that for the same reason I've been saying. It is a buy the rumor, sell the fact. By the time the Fed gets around to raising rates, the market has already built in, has already priced in those rate hikes into the exchange rate. So by the time the Fed gets around to doing what the market has already discounted, it goes the other way. Buy the rumor, sell the fact. 
except in this case, and, you know, uh, Gundelok didn't mention this, but I don't think the fact is going to live up to the rumor because even though the Fed is raising rates, I don't believe they will raise rates as much as the market believes. And even if the Fed does continue with these quarter point rate hikes for longer than I think that they might, I think it's only going to be because inflation is rising at a pace that is faster than the rate hikes. So no matter how many times the Fed hikes rates, real interest rates will still be falling. And again, what would be supportive of the dollar, in theory, would be higher real interest rates, not higher nominal interest rates. But regardless, uh, Gundelok is very bearish on the dollar, and he says that that makes sense because he says, and I've said the same thing, that the emerging markets are extremely correlated with the dollar. If you have a weak dollar, you have strong emerging markets. So this is exactly what I've been recommending. Now, Gundelok didn't talk about gold or talk about gold stocks, but in general, the same thing. If we're going to have a weak dollar, which is good for emerging markets, a weak dollar is good for gold, and it's good for commodities in general, and it's good for gold stocks. So, you know, the, the, the good news here is that even if I'm wrong, let's say you're following my investment strategy, which is based on really bad things happening in the United States, because I believe we're headed for a real crisis. Even if I'm wrong and you follow my advice and you build a portfolio of foreign stocks, emerging markets, gold stocks, even if I'm wrong, as long as Jeff Gundelok is right, you're going to make money, right? Because his thesis is not based on the U.S. collapsing. It's just based on a historic analysis looking at valuations and making a rational investment decision. In fact, he also looked at the returns from passive investing, which is all the vogue right now, versus active management. And he showed historically where you have periods of time where the passive approach outperforms and you have long periods of time where active management. And he also said that we are now about to enter a time period where active management is going to outperform passive, which, of course, Everybody is loaded up now in the index funds, right? Everybody is doing the exact wrong thing. Everybody is loaded up on U.S. stocks in a passive way because they're buying the indexes. And according to Gundlach, that's the exact wrong thing you should be doing. According to him, you should have your money with an active manager who is managing your money in international stocks, which is exactly what I'm doing at Europe Pacific Capital. So I think, you know, this you know, should give some people or some investors some confidence that, you know, hey, even if Peter isn't right about the U.S. crash, or even if he is right, but his timing is off, maybe this is not going to happen for years and years, you at least have a very, you know, smart mainstream guy saying the exact same thing. Now, he was talking to a large audience, right? This is an audience of thousands of people, and they paid a lot of money to go to this SALT conference. And assuming they value Gundelop's Opinion. I mean, they don't care what I say, but now this guy, Jeff Gundelock, their the hero, he says this. There's a lot of people that might act on this. But, you know, a lot of these guys, when, you know, they, they, they have investment committees, when they're managing money for endowments or, or, or pensions or, you know, big universities, if they want to have a change in strategy, if they want to recommend that their clients now, you know, reallocate money from the U.S. markets to the international markets or to the emerging markets, they don't just do this, you know, quickly. They have to go through, again, committees and meetings, and it could take months before they even can get the permission to reallocate their funds. So my thinking is, or my advice is, front run that money, right? If you know that these big institutions are now starting to think about allocating money 
away from the U.S. because there are very strong, rational reasons just based on history, even forgetting about the economics, to do it, right? Because if Gundelach is right, people who follow my advice will make a lot of money. If I'm right, they'll make even more money because I don't even think Gundelach knows how right he is. He's talking about how the foreign markets are going to outperform the U.S. market, but I think the outperformance is going to be much greater than he thinks. He's bearish on the dollar. I just don't think he's bearish enough. But regardless, if he's right, if the dollar goes down, you're going to make money in foreign stocks. If foreign stocks outperform the U.S. market, you're better off in foreign stocks than in U.S. stocks. But if we have this real collapse that I think is coming, then, of course, it's not just being better off. It's you're basically you're, you're, you're saving yourself. I think people who aren't invested internationally, if I'm right, they're going to get wiped out in a, a in a dollar crisis. You know, meanwhile, I wanted to throw one more comment on there out on what happened with gold and the gold stocks yesterday, because gold was up about 20 bucks uh, yesterday, 22, 23 dollars. Actually, we got back above 1230. It was up about 1.8 percent. But the gold stocks were only up about 1.8 percent as well, which, again, in a normal environment, if gold is up 1.8 percent, gold stocks would be up about four or five percent. But gold stocks were very weak. Now, today, gold is down a few bucks. Maybe it's down like five, six bucks. So it's given back a small portion of its $22 gain from yesterday. And the gold stocks have not only given up 100% of what they gained yesterday, they're actually down between the two days. As I speak, gold stocks are down better than 2%, even though the price of gold is down about 0.3%. So you have almost a 10 times, gold stocks are down almost 10 times as much as gold on the way down. Uh, so these stocks are still not acting well. And either that's a harbinger of a decline to come in gold, or what I think is more likely is it just shows me that the mainstream is still so suspicious of this gold rally, so worried that it's just temporary and it's not going to last, that they don't want to buy the gold stocks. Or they want to short the gold stocks into any gold strength because they're convinced it's going to go down. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar hit a new six-month low yesterday on the weakness in the stock market. We got down in the dollar index is trading in the, in the 97 handle. I mean, I saw last night we got down below 97.40. We're now back up slightly above 97.60. I think what's helping the dollar today is the weakness in the Brazilian real and the turmoil going on down there is probably stealing some of the, the thunder away from the problems in the U.S. and getting people to focus on problems someplace else. And so that might be creating some type of flight to quality bid in the dollar today against some of these currencies. And, and so that could be mitigating the damage. But, you know, the U.S. stock market, I think as people start to digest what this means, what this means for Donald Trump, what this means for getting his agenda through Congress, right, which everybody believed was going to power the market higher. And even when they get their arms around the fact that even if they get President Pence, that Pence is not going to step into the White House with a huge mandate to necessarily do anything. And I think if he becomes president, he is not going to be able to invoke the type of hope for something so dramatically different, which is what this whole bull market was based on. So we could be at the beginning of a more substantial correction in the stock market and one which the only way that the correction will end 
will be if the Fed brings it to an end by uh, changing its rhetoric. And so far, that has not happened. So far, the Fed has not done anything. And again, I was surprised that the Fed has not taken advantage of all the opportunities. If they wanted to stop raising rates, they had plenty of opportunities. The data was horrible, right? They would not have lost face given this data. All they had to do is acknowledge that the data was weaker than they thought, and they didn't have to, they could have changed their tune. But maybe it's also that the Fed doesn't want to admit that it was wrong because it still wants to pretend that it was right because it still wants to instill that confidence. And it's afraid if it admits that it was wrong, that it'll lose the confidence. And this whole thing is about confidence. It is one big con game. And of course, eventually the marks are going to figure out that they're being conned. But if this pullback turns into a big correction, then the Fed might do something. Because I think the main thing that the Fed is afraid of is the bursting of the bubbles because they built this phony recovery on assets and the wealth effect. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in this podcast, you have all these Americans who no longer own homes. And so their household net worth has gone down even as their debt has gone up. But there's one segment of the population where their household's net worth has gone way up. And that is the top 1% or the wealthiest Americans who didn't lose their homes uh, to foreclosure in the housing bust. They still own their homes. The prices have come back, so they still have their home equity. But more importantly, the wealthier Americans have money in the stock market. And the stock market has risen sharply. So on the upper end, you have balance sheets that are in much better shape now, given the rise in the stock market and the bounce back in the real estate market. That's all the Fed's got going for it. And so if those bubbles are threatened by a big decline, then I think the Fed won't resist. Then I think they're going to have to come out with some kind of excuse to change policy, uh, to put a floor beneath this market and to blow air back into the bubble. Thank you.